Okay, we are in the book of Ruth, chapter 3, midway through this short book. Ruth is a narrative, again, of a beautiful love story, a, a, not only a divine story of redemption and restoration, it's a beautiful narrative of a love story between a man and woman, Ruth, and this man, Boaz, but as I said, a, a divine romance, a divine story of redemption and restoration, because in this, as we've seen already, we find not only just actual historical events that took place in the nation of Israel, but weaved within this, as weaved within so much of the Word of God by the Holy Spirit, are beautiful types and pictures of the redemption and the restoration of Jesus Christ. Boaz becomes this beautiful picture and type of Jesus. Ruth, this beautiful picture and analogy of you and I, the church, and how he steps in and restores and saves and spares for her what would have been lost and what she was not able to do for herself. And just great lessons we find weaved all throughout this. Now, it would be helpful, certainly picking up here in chapter 3, again, because this is a running narrative, to just remind ourselves again of the course of events that are taking place as this is a narrative story. Again, chapter 1 opens by telling us there that in the nation of Israel, during the time of the judges, that there was a famine in the land. And there was this family, Elimelech and Naomi, who was the mother-in-law, we'll see as we continue on and her two sons, and in the midst of this famine, Elimelech found that it would be in the best interest of his family, according to his estimation, to leave the land of Israel. He goes to the land of Moab. Now, whether that was a right or a wrong decision, we can only speculate, but rather than remaining in the land of God's promise, the place where they were called to be, he, trying to do what was best for his family, leads them to Moab outside of Israel. And unfortunately, things didn't get better. Things actually got worse there. Because remember, over a series of years, it says that Elimelech then died, leaving Naomi as a widow with her two sons. Her two sons then took Moabite wives, Ruth and, uh, <laughs> Ruth and Orpah, and then, if tragedy wasn't bad once enough, then Naomi lost her two sons. The two sons then actually died, leaving her as a widowed woman. And then on top of that, having lost not one, but two of her children having died before her. A wish that no parent would ever wish upon even their worst enemy as a fellow parent to lose not only one of their children, but to lose two of their children because uh, no parent ever expects uh, to outlive their own children. So she's been through tremendous tragedy. And at a certain point, it says that Ruth hears that God had visited the area of Bethlehem, had visited the people of Israel once again in his kindness. And again, there was food and sustenance in the land. So she makes the determination after having been there for a decade, for 10 years in this foreign land, she knows hardly anyone to go back among her people. She makes a decision to return to the land of Israel. Initially, the two daughter-in-laws seem to express desire to want to go with her. Ruth, uh, Naomi then tries to deter that. And as she tries to deter that, very quickly it seems that the one daughter-in-law, Urpah, is persuaded to return back to her people. Ruth, however, doesn't want to leave Naomi's side. 
And she seems to be attached to her mother-in-law. She demonstrates her character, that she's a selfless woman, that she's other-centered. And though Naomi says, listen, you're young. Even if I got married and had children again tomorrow, you're not going to wait until I can raise up another child to give you another husband so you can stay connected to me as your mother-in-law. Go back among your people and live with them. This is your homeland. But Ruth, remember, makes that declaration, entreat me not to leave you or turn back from following you. And she then begins to express to her, your people shall become my people. And then she says, in your God, the God of Israel, Yahweh God, your God shall be my God. And she said, far be it from me, if anything but death separates me from you. And so she has this heart and feels a sense that she wants to embrace the God of Israel. She wants to go back with her mother-in-law, Naomi, to the land of Israel, willing in faith to let go of everything that she knows, all her comfort zones, everything she's familiar with, and to go to a land she's never been to before. And I believe it's partially because of her newfound faith in Yahweh God, she chooses to go back to Israel with Naomi. When they arrive back in Bethlehem, Naomi is completely still feeling bitter as if God is against her because she feels she's lost everything, not only her family, but she returns back now. They've had to give up their land. They are wondering how they're going to survive, but it's the beginning of the barley harvest. And Ruth offers to go out and to work in the fields and to take advantage of the principle God established in the Mosaic law where the orphans and widows and poor in the land could go through after the harvesters and glean whatever was still left in the field. So she goes out to work in the fields and as she's there as a diligent, hardworking woman, it tells us that Boaz, the hero of our story, shows up and he takes notice there's this new young lady working out in his fields. And he says, hmm, who's that over there? And he inquires who Ruth is and the word comes back from his Workman, this is Ruth the Moabitess. Remember, she's the woman everyone's talking about. She came back from Moab. She's taking care of Naomi and helping her mother-in-law. And at that point, then Boaz and Ruth begin to engage in conversation. They take an interest. It's very clear in one another. This sort of subtle romance begins to happen. And Boaz, being a good-natured man, wants to do everything he can. He's trying to protect her welfare. He says, look, you stay with my ladies. I've told my men not to touch you. You work in these fields. You don't have to go anywhere else. You just stay right here in my fields. You can take all that you want. He then shares a little meal with her. And then after the meal and inviting her to have the freedom to work in his fields as much as he, uh, she wants... He then even, remember, tells the workers, listen, here's what I want you to do. Don't just let her work in these fields. I want you to deliberately drop food in front of her and make it as easy as possible so she can be abundantly blessed and well taken care of and be provided for. And again, just this incredible nature of showing her grace and blessing, even as Jesus so often does for us, though unworthy of those kind of things. And as she goes home that day with an abundance of provision, as we left off last week at the end of chapter 2, Naomi says there in chapter 2, verse 20, let's just pick it up there for sake of refreshment. She says to her daughter-in-law, blessed be he of the Lord, who's not forsaken his kindness to the living and the dead. And Naomi said, this man, as she found out she had been working in Boaz's field of all people, that happened to be the field she wandered into, this man is a close relative of ours and Ruth the Moabitess said he also said to me you shall stay close to my young men until they finished all my harvest and Naomi said to Ruth her daughter-in-law it is good my daughter that you go out with these young women 
and that the people do not meet you in any other field. In other words, stay in that field. God's directed you into that field. Remember, the beginning of chapter 2 indicated it just so happened that she ended up in the field of Boaz. But that was not just a coincidence. That was God's providence that of all the fields she could have won into to work, it just so happened God was directing her steps, of course, that she ended up in the right field she was supposed to be to meet Mr. Wright. And that's how it works. Uh, we don't need to go out hunting. We just are supposed to be in the field the Lord's called us to be in and occupy yourself there. And, and, and God will have you in the right field at the right time in the right place to meet the right individuals, whether it's to find your spouse or whatever other things. So Naomi recognizes that God has orchestrated something here and that this is a close relative of theirs, which means that he's able to be what's called a kinsman redeemer which was very important. So when she says there, chapter 2, verse 20, this is, a man is a relative of ours, one of our close relatives. It's the Hebrew term, the goel, which speaks of a kinsman or the nearest blood relative. So Naomi is ecstatic because she realizes, oh my goodness, look at what God's put together. There's actually hope for us and for our family. There's a hope that our family name and line can now be preserved. There's a hope that, that we could have restored back to us our allotment of land that God gave to our family that we lost in the midst of our poverty and we had to sell off when we went to Moab because we were trying to do everything we could to survive. And she realizes that through this potential romance, which could culminate in a marriage, that God had a plan of salvation for them as a family, as two widows, of deliverance and of restoration of everything that had been lost. And this is what the role of the kinsman redeemer among the Jews was. And it's important to remember this as we continue on in the story of the book of Ruth. The kinsman redeemer, as referenced in the Old Testament, was able to, number one, and not just able to, but responsible to, for by God's design to do a few things. First of all, they could guarantee that a family's name and existence and their inheritance, their land, was spared and saved. So if that had been lost, the kinsman redeemer, a goel, a blood relative, could serve in a capacity through marriage and using what wealth and resources they had to redeem back and intervene and help when someone found themselves in a difficult situation or to marry the individual who was a widow of their relative that did not have a son or an heir that could take over the inheritance for the family. And when a family fell on hard times, as I said, at times they would also sell their land in order to survive. And it was that kinsman redeemer in a family that was able by Mosaic law to exercise on behalf the right of redemption and if they had the resources they could purchase or redeem back that land allotment for the family so that it could be restored back to where it originally was and from whom it had been lost. Now let me just give you a few scripture references that refer to this. Leviticus 25 verse 23 to 25 says this the land shall not be sold permanently for the land is mine for you are strangers and sojourners with me the lord said and in all the land of your possession you shall grant redemption of the land if one of your brethren becomes poor and has sold some of his possession and his redeeming relative comes to redeem it then he may redeem what his brother has sold 
This is what Boaz is able to do because he's a goel, a close relative of kinsmen. Deuteronomy 25 reminds us of this in verse 5 and 6. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, and the widow of the dead man, it says, shall not be married to a stranger outside of the family, her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as a wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn son then which she bears will succeed the name of his dead brother that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. This was called the law of the Leverite marriage where basically it was understood that if a widowed woman's husband who had died and her had not conceived and brought forth an heir that she was not just to marry anyone, the closest blood relative beginning with one of the brothers was to marry and take the widowed woman as a wife to conceive and raise up an heir on behalf of his deceased brother so that his name and his family line and inheritance would be preserved. And this was the law of the Leverite marriage, beginning with the brother or if not the most closest near relative afterwards. Again, Numbers chapter 27 refers to this same thing. Now, this is what's so exciting because Naomi realizes that Boaz and Ruth are not just this, oh, happenstance romantic relationship, but she realizes this relationship's of the Lord. This is God. God's brought these two people together. Two people who didn't know each other, never met one another, weren't even looking and chasing and pursuing and hunting after one another. And yet God had them in the right place at the right time, just having them in the right and same field that their paths would cross as they were just both seeking to serve the Lord. And there they were in the same field and met one another. And in the midst of that, then just the natural connections of attraction and romance and all these things that are beautiful, wonderful parts of a relationship are now beginning to culminate. So Naomi realizes the potential of this. So like matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match. She realizes, hey, maybe I could help out here as an older woman. I know how these things work. So look, chapter three opens up by saying, then Naomi, her mother-in-law said to her, my daughter, shall I not seek security for you that it may be well with you? In other words, notice she says, may I not seek security for you? We talked about this at the beginning of the book. In that day, in ancient Israel, we have to understand it's very different maybe than our Western mindset today. A woman's security was bound up in being married. To be able to have a husband, to be a covering to her, to be provision for her, for a woman to be married guaranteed her security, her provision, her protection. Now, I understand that's, that's somewhat hard in our culture, and especially in a culture that has become overly, you know, uh, women's liberal and feministic, and so I don't need no man. I mean, it, it's very hard for us almost to grasp that, but we have to understand in that day and age, to be widowed or to not have on top of that any sons to take care of you meant that you may have no source of income, work, and, and it was the risk of your survival. So she views marriage, and I think it's a very beautiful thing the scripture holds out here. She views a marital relationship as making Ruth a more secure woman. And I think there's a beautiful element of truth to that. Marriage does bring a measure of, of secureness, of, of wholeness, and completeness. That's always been the heart of God. 
that God would bring together a man and a woman to be completers to one another, that they would be more fulfilled and they would be better together than they would be living independently. So when she says here, shall I not seek security for your life that it may be noticed well with you, it will be well, better for you if you would perhaps have this marriage relationship. She's basically saying, I, I need to arrange marriage for you here, honey. I'm going to help you. So follow my instructions and do what I say. And ultimately, this could end up in a marriage relationship. Now, keep in mind in that culture as well. Marriages were typically arranged. So this was not unusual. This wasn't a meddling mother-in-law here. And I know sometimes that exists, but that's not the case here. This, in this culture, they typically arranged marriages. They had a different view of marriage. Marriage was about commitment. It was about covenant. Now, listen. I don't think that that means there should be the absence of attraction or love and the beauty of all things. Listen, to this day still, my heart skips a beat, you know, 22 years later after having been married to my wife. That is right, 22, right? I just choke. I'm sure I didn't have to repent and sleep on the couch tonight. It wasn't in the notes, so I had to make sure that came out right there. Repent publicly if not. I think attraction is a wonderful thing. I think love and I think that's a beautiful thing. I think that's all a part of God's grand design. He created all those kind of things. But we need to realize that marriage is much more than just whim and infatuation and, and romantic attraction alone. There's something much deeper that God intends. And those things come and go. And that's okay. Those things are allowed to come and go. It's about a covenant, a commitment. And because of that, that's why they would, in that culture in their perspective and to some cultures to this day still if you travel around the world they still arrange marriages and in some of those cultures where they arrange marriages listen they have lower divorce rates than we do because the perspective of them is you will learn to love this person despite your incompatibilities oh we have irreconcilable differences that's why we're getting married who doesn't have irreconcilable differences we're different by design that's how we're supposed to function together, to complement one another. You zig, she zags. That's the way it's supposed to work so that you're balanced, so that you rub off each other's extremes. And, and they understood arranged marriages weren't a bad thing because typically what people's mindset was, I will learn to love this person. I will learn to live with this person and operate with this person and support them and give and take and learn how to function together. Their perspective was more on commitment than it was the need for these other things. So she's wanting to arrange a marriage relationship. So verse 2 says, Now Boaz, whose young woman you were with, now watch, she's going to give her some marital counseling as an older woman to a younger lady. Boaz, whose young woman you were with, is he not our relative? There's the idea then. He's, he's our kinsman, a goel. And in fact, she says, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Now, after they brought in the harvest, the next process was this. They would then winnow the wheat and the grain at the threshing floor. Typically, threshing floor was a an elevated area. It was a flat area where the wind was able to pass. And a lot of times they would do in the evenings when the winds would pick up all the more. And she realizes this is now the time when the men are working on winnowing the barley at the threshing floor at the end of the barley harvest. So she says, that's where he's going to be at. So she's saying, I know where he's going to be tonight. And so therefore, this is really great advice. Verse three, she says, therefore, number one, Wash yourself. In other words, take a bath, honey. That's always a good thing if you're going to go out on a date or try and pursue marriage. 
Wash yourself. Clean yourself up, she says. You know, they worked out in fields. They sweated and worked hard. Remember, she was working in the fields like a laborer. Take a bath. Anoint yourself. That is, put on a little perfume in case the bath doesn't dress everything. Make yourself smell well, appealing. Put on your best garment. So notice, put on your nicest outfit. So the, again, you notice the idea here within the scripture. The idea is, Make yourself appealing. Nothing wrong with making appealing. She says, wash yourself, put on some perfume, put on your best, most attractive outfit, make yourself appealing looking, make yourself attractive. Nothing wrong with that. And then she says, go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. So what she's saying is, is don't go down there and reveal yourself prematurely. She's saying, just wait for the right timing is what she's saying. Wait until they're done. The typical celebratory process after they do the work, they would then celebrate and feast to rejoice in the harvest that God had brought in as they would do this together. So, so she's just basically saying, get yourself ready, go down there, but, but wait for the right timing. Don't push forward too much prematurely. And I think this is great counsel as well in and of itself. That, that it's always a good thing, even in the midst of relationship dynamics, that you wait for the right timing. The Bible tells us there's a time and a season for every purpose under heaven. And we always remember a time to speak and a time to be silent. But in that same list, it also says there's a time to embrace and there's a time to refrain from embracing. The Bible tells us in the Song of Solomon, a book that's all about romantic love, don't arouse or awaken love until it so desires. In other words, let the pace be right. Let the timing be right there. The whole idea is, so she says, don't prematurely reveal yourself. Just go down there. Verse four, here's her next instruction. It shall be, then when he lies down, that is to go to sleep, that you shall notice the place where he lies. And the point she's making there is because there would be lots of men all laying around the piles of the recent barley harvest there at the threshing floor. It wouldn't just be Boaz down there. So as you read this, don't get the idea she's just going over Boaz's house. This is a, a, a public place where there'd be big heaps and the men would be lying all around. And so she says, it's going to be dark. There's not outside lights. So take notice where Boaz goes and lies down, particularly she says, again, they would basically lay there at night and sleep there to protect their harvest. So again, remember this is the time of the judges? So they didn't want thieves to come in and steal their harvest, so they would sleep there overnight as a way of securing and protecting their provisions. So take notice where he lies, and you shall go in, now this seems a little unusual, verse 4 to us, uncover his feet, you may say, ew, gross, and lie down, and he will tell you what you should do. So she says, go find where he's at and go position yourself at his feet. Just lay down there quietly and, again, wait until he tells you what to do. The idea is when he notices that you're there, she says, that's enough from that point. Don't be too pushy. Don't be too forward. Take too much initiative. She's saying, you submit to his lead. Let him provide the guidance from that place forward. Allow him to lead, she's saying. You just submit yourself to him. Let your presence be known. But after you submit yourself, let him take the lead. He will tell you what you should do. Boy, is that not a beautiful picture 
of spiritually how we should relate to Jesus. We should go position ourselves at the feet of Jesus and Jesus will tell you what to do. You just humble yourself at the feet of Jesus and say, Lord, here I am. I present myself to you as your servant. Would you tell me what you would have me to do? Would you show me? Would you guide me? And we let Jesus provide direction and leadership to him. And what he says to us, we then respond from his guidance and his leadership. Well, verse 5, she then said to her mother-in-law, Naomi, all that you say to me, I will do. Got it, mom? Maybe she had a little tablet out. Write down all the instructions. Take a bath. Put on perfume. You know, do all these things. Best garment. Okay, got it. Go there. Lay at his feet. Again, remember, she's a Moabite woman. These are Jewish customs, which made a lot of sense to them, but would be new to her, which is why her mother-in-law is giving to her this guidance. So verse 6 says, She went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law instructed her. And after Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was cheerful, they were done celebrating. He had a good night of rejoicing over God's provision with the men that were there. They probably all went and laid down. It says he went to lie down at the end of the heap. So he kind of made himself a a pillow there, it says, uh, on the heap of the grain. And she came softly. The idea is she quietly made her way into where he was, uncovered his feet like her mother-in-law told her, and just laid down there at his feet. Now, again, as you're reading this, please understand this is totally pure. This is completely innocent. There's nothing inappropriate being done here. This is totally cultural and relevant. And they knew in this day exactly what this meant. This is basically her way of saying, I'm submitting myself unto you. I want to come under your authority. She's just presenting herself there to him. There's nothing inappropriate going on here. Don't misread what's being described here. Again, she's not going up and cuddling by his side. She's laying there by his feet with other people all around them as they're laying around this grain pile there. Well, imagine this, verse 8. You have to put yourself in this experience. And it happened at midnight. So she just goes there. Did she fall asleep? I don't know. She laying there with one eye open. She uncovers his feet, which probably made his feet start to get cold. And she's just laying there at his feet, quietly doing nothing. And... How many hours passed? It happened at midnight. The man was startled. Something woke him up. And he turned himself. And imagine this for a single guy. There was a woman lying at his feet. I mean, it's like a single guy's dream, right? He wakes up. Whoa! Thank you, Lord. (laughs) That's like a single guy's gift right there. Lord, you bring her right at my feet. I mean, Adam went to sleep and woke up and realized that he'd undergone surgery and God provided him a woman. Remember? Jacob went to sleep and that poor guy woke up and realized that somebody did the switcheroo with his bride. Here, Boaz goes to sleep as a single man. He wakes up and God's put a woman right at his feet for him. I mean, you talk about the Lord supplying all of our need. He knows the desires of our heart and this is the woman he wants to marry too. And he brings her right to him and there she is but this must have been quite a shock he wakes up and what's going on here so he said verse 9 who are you which goes to show you that it's very dark he can't make out again he's kind of half asleep rubbing the uh, dust out of his eyes he's shocked by waking up and realizing someone's there who is that what are you doing down there by my feet so she answered i am ruth notice 
She doesn't say Ruth the Moabite, it's Ruth your maid servant. She's indicating her humility, her submission. And she then says, take your maid servant under your wing, for you are, there's our term again, a close relative, you're a kinsman. You're a goel. You're someone who's able to be a kinsman redeemer for me and for our family. So basically what she is doing there is indicating to him that she wants him to marry her. You can look at it and say potentially she's proposing to him. I don't know if she so much is proposing to him as much as she's making it as evident as possible. I want you to propose to me. That is going on, that part there. I want you to marry me. When are you going to marry me? I mean, sometimes that happens. She's saying to him, I'm your maidservant. Here I am. I'm presenting myself to you, she says, in humility and submission. Take me, she says, under your wing. For not only do I want you to be my husband, but you are able to be a kinsman, a close relative in who you are for our family. Now, I think it's very beautiful, the analogy there. Take me under your wing. It's a picture. She's basically saying to him, I want to come under your covering. I want to come under your covering. I think it's a beautiful analogy of the heart of this woman towards a marital relationship with this man that she wants to be her husband. She's saying, I want to come under your covering. and, And that's God's heart. That's God's design. That a husband would provide leadership, that a husband would provide a spiritual and in every other capacity covering for his wife. That she would under his protection, under his provision, under his guidance, under his care, that a woman would be able to come under the covering of her husband to be cared for in that way. That she would want to submit herself to him to experience that and that that would be the role that he is to play in her life to take care of her in this gentle way by coming under his covering. Well, he, verse 10, said, Blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter. So he's excited because he realizes who this is. And remember from the last chapter, this is who he wants to be with. He's shocked, but he's pleasantly surprised because he realizes what she is saying to him. I want you to become my husband. So he says, Blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter, For you have shown more kindness at the end than at the beginning in that you did not notice go after young men, whether poor or rich. So it does seem that there is quite an age gap here between Boaz and Ruth. Remember, Boaz was a contemporary among the family of Elimelech and Naomi. So it's very possible that there's a considerable age difference, which is probably why people say, why didn't Boaz go pursue the marriage with Ruth right away? It could be that this is the admission of part of the reason why is he's thinking, Ruth's never going to be interested in me. What would she want to do with me? I mean, I'm beyond her in age. I mean, this is a beautiful, attractive, godly, wonderful. I mean, we've seen all these wonderful attributes of Ruth, particularly in chapter 2. What would she want to be with me for? She can have any young man that she wants. She could have so much better than me. And he just kind of feels like, I mean, she's just, she's out of my league. What would she want to be with me? I I felt like that with my wife when I first met her. I didn't pursue my wife initially because I just thought to myself, what in the world would she want to settle for less with me for? And perhaps this is the reason that Boaz had this same heart that he was kind of refraining and why it seems like here that he's pleasantly shocked. He's saying, oh, blessed of the Lord. You could have had any young man you wanted to. Any young man, but yet you chose 
to want to be with me, which Boaz appreciates and realizes that Ruth's heart towards marriage was more than just her own self-interest and what it was for her. She really wanted, and this is what I think, she wanted what God wanted for her. She wanted what God wanted for her. And she wanted the husband that God had for her. She wanted God to select what was best for her maritally and best for her family. And she knew that Boaz wasn't just a blessing for her, but he would be a blessing and an addition to the entire family. And this is a picture, a beautiful picture of someone who doesn't just want what she wants in a marriage relationship. She wants what God wants in a marriage relationship. And can I say again tonight, if you're single or a young person, that's the right approach towards marriage. Don't just go chasing somebody because they have this surfacey thing. Nothing wrong with those things. But there's much deeper things. And, and the fundamental issue is, who's God chosen for you? Oh, but I'm so attracted to this person, or I like this person so much, or we have so much in common. Right, but is that who God's chosen for you? Because that's the crux of the matter at the end of the day. Don't ever think that somehow that you're going to determine what's best better than God would. Don't settle for less than God's best. Let God give you his best. And this is what Ruth is doing here. She chooses Boaz because she realizes this would be God's best for me on a much deeper level. And he realizes this and he's praising her for that. He's commending her for it. So verse 11, he then instructs her forward saying, and now my daughter... Do not fear. Don't worry, he says. I will do for you all that you request. I want to marry you. I want to be the kinsman for your family and redeem the land and take you to myself. The things that, again, the Hebrew law would tell them that they could do as him as her husband. For all the people of my town, he says, verse 11, know that you are, look at it, a virtuous woman. Again, that Proverbs 31 kind of woman. Charm is deceitful, beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord shall be praised. That Proverbs 31 woman, that virtuous woman. This is, again, was she probably very attractive? Yeah. But what was the main thing he found so wonderful? He says, you're a virtuous, godly woman. He says, everybody in my town knows your reputation. This woman had a great reputation. She had a good reputation, and that was something that spoke of her character above everything else. He says, verse 12, Now it is true that I am a close relative. I am able because I am of your bloodline of the kin of the family of Naomi and Elimelech, your mother-in-law. However, he says, this must have been hard to say, there is a relative closer than I. Uh-oh. Oh, this is not a scary thing for a couple. Oh, no, I, I am a kinsman. I have that ability but again, it was always to be the closest, nearest kin first. So Boaz has to say to her, listen, I love you. I do want to be with you. But he says, first of all, I need to walk integrity before God. And therefore, we have to truly see if this is of God or not, because there is one person in line before me. Talk about a man of faith, a man of integrity. A man of sacrificial nature, willing to give up what he wants so badly because he wants God's will to be done before his or anybody else's. And that great leadership that he would say to her, listen, we can't cut corners. We have to honor God. 
And if God would have you to be with someone else, the will of the Lord be done. Can I say something? That's true love. That's true love. That's the kind of love that Jesus has for us. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And this is beautiful love, man. That is the kind of love, ladies, the kind of guy that you want to have. A guy that wants the will of the Lord more than his way. He's not self-willed. He's centered on wanting God's will. He says, there is someone who's closer than I, and we need to find out first if that's what God had intended. Verse 13, stay the night, he says, and in the morning, when it's daylight, it shall be, that if he will perform the duty of a close relative for you, good, let him do it. But if he does not want to perform the duty for you, again, there was a willingness issue connected to it. If he does not want to perform the duty, they could waive the right. Deuteronomy uh, tells us that in chapter 25 that they could choose to say, I know it's my opportunity, but I don't want to fulfill the role of the kinsman. There needed to be willingness. So he understands that if he doesn't want to perform the duty of marrying you, raising up an heir and buying back the land with his money, then he says, I will gladly, I'm sure he said, perform the duty for you as the Lord lives, lie down until morning. So she laid his feet until morning and she arose before one could recognize another. And he said, do not let it be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Now notice something else about this man. What does he care about? Her purity. He says, you stay here all night. I don't want you to risk walking around in the dark of night and the danger that that promotes and presents out there. So he says, stay here where you're safe until the daylight begins to dawn. But notice again, she stays there. And what does verse 15 say? Or 14, excuse me. She lay at his feet until morning. It was none of this nonsense of, well, I mean, well, we're in love and we're going to be married anyway. So you might as well come up here. Let's cuddle, honey. There's restraint here. There's purity being shown. And he wants to protect her purity. And he's protecting against the potential temptations that probably would have come if they would have cuddled side by side all night long instead of him just laying there and her laying in proximity so he could keep her safe, but down by his feet so that there wasn't that temptation. This shows you, again, this man loves this woman and he loves the Lord. Because he's showing restraint in the area of sexual purity with this woman that he cares about. And again, this is, this is an important thing. Love is not just about what people will do for one another. It's also about what people won't do at times. Sometimes love is demonstrated by restraint. God's love at times is shown by restraint. And here he shows his love for her. Again, 1 Corinthians 13 says love is, first of all, patient. It says it doesn't seek its own. So don't ever give me this nonsense or buy into this mindset, ladies, especially where some guy's trying to tell you or vice versa. If it works the other ways. Don't put all the blame on the guys. Oh, well, listen, I love you so much. I just, I can't restrain myself. We're going to be together anyway. I mean, we're already married in God's eyes. <laughs> no, you're not. No, you're not. What he's saying is, I love myself and I want to satisfy myself and so I'm not going to restrain myself and honor you and honor the Lord. That's not love. That's called lust. At least correct the word there. 
And Boaz here, this beautiful way, shows restraint and then even notice caring about her reputation in the midst of it. He tells her to leave early and he tells anyone who may have saw her among those men that were there, do not let it be known that that woman came here to the threshing floor. He wants to protect her reputation. That's beautiful. Even as Jesus does those same things for us, guarding our purity, keeping us, protecting us in our reputation as well. And here he wants to guard her reputation. I think this is a beautiful, beautiful example. Look for this kind of guy, ladies. Verse 15, and also he said, bring the shawl that is on you and hold it. And when she held it, he measured out six ephahs of barley and laid it on her and she went into the city. Now, notice that's six times as much he gave to her last time. That there in weight is literally... I mean, probably upwards maybe to like 50 plus pounds. That's a lot of barley. This was a strong lady. I mean, you just give me your little satchel there and he meant 50 pounds of, you know, bring that home. And he loads all this. What is he doing again? He's blessing this gal. I mean, he just can't stop blessing her. He can't stop heaping his grace and his blessings upon her just like Jesus does for us. As we continue to grow closer to the Lord and draw nearer to the Lord and go deeper with the Lord... He just continues to be more gracious to us. And he blesses us abundantly. He does above and beyond what we could ever ask or imagine as he works in our lives. And notice, I think what he's doing here is he sends her back, not empty-handed, but he sends her back with all this barley. I think this is something of a way of him signifying to him and to her mother-in-law, I have full intentions on marrying you and providing for you and taking care of you the rest of my life as I take you under my wing. And so in a sense, he's giving this to her somewhat, listen, as kind of like the deposit. This is the engagement ring, 50 pounds of barley. So he says, you take this back because I want you to know and I want your mother-in-law to know that I'm serious about fulfilling this. Now, isn't that a beautiful reminder? Because the Bible tells us in the New Testament that Jesus, as he betrothes himself to you and I as his virgin bride, has given to us a what? Deposit, a guarantee of the culmination of the marriage that we're going to experience with Christ as we celebrate the marriage supper of the Lamb as we enter into heaven. And Ephesians 1 tells us that he's given to us his Holy Spirit as a guarantee, as a down payment, as an earnest and deposit saying, I want you to have something very valuable and precious from me so that you know I plan on finishing this relationship with you. And so he sends her away with this load of six ephahs of barley. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, is that you, my daughter? And she told her all the man had done for her. And she said, these six ephahs of barley he gave to me, for he said, do not go empty-handed to your mother-in-law. He says, when you go back, I want you to give some of this to your mother-in-law. Show her my earnest and intention towards you. And, and he, notice, he doesn't want to just bless Ruth. He also wants to bless Ruth's mother. Good man again, right? Kind of got, I mean, just shows, those kind of things just show you something about character. He wants to win over the mom. Wants to win over the parents. I see how this works. I got suitors coming around my house now. Valentine just passed. I watched one of these guys come in. He worked all his little moves at my daughter and then he bought my wife some chocolates. He even bought me a little box of chocolates. I thought that was weird myself, but uh, like just, I mean, a certain cross a line there. I mean, just it's, don't be presumptuous. 
But again, just just shows the character, right? He wants to get in good graces with the with the mother too. He just again loves the family as well as loving the gal. I mean, just a beautiful demonstration of a virtuous, noble man, a beautiful thing. Well, verse 18, we'll conclude with this. And then she said, this is the advice now of Naomi, sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out. For the man will not rest until he has concluded the matter this day. So they probably dialogued about, listen, mom, I went down there and, and, and we talked about marriage and, 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 and he wants to marry me and I want to marry him and this seems like it's of the Lord. But then he said that there's actually someone else and we have to find out first if that's who it would be better to marry me as a kinsman, to do what's best. And, and, and it could be that though we want to be together so bad, it may not be God's will for us to be together. And she says to her, Ruth, don't push him. Don't pressure him. She says, Ruth, you sit still. Wait until you see and know how the matter will turn out. She says, just sit, be patient, wait in faith and see how the matter unfolds and how it turns out. She says, because this guy, he won't let it rest. He's a good hearted man. He will not let this rest, she says, until he has concluded the matter this day. But she says, you got to give him room. You got to give him space. Let him take care of it. She's warning her not to be pushy or to pressure him, but to let him handle it and to just wait and that's hard to do isn't it right to just wait and to let him handle to wait on God's timing and she says he will address it you just wait and see how the matter will turn out and boy as we think of that in relation to not just if you're in a romantic relationship but in our spiritual relationship as we have that kind of relationship with Jesus sometimes isn't that kind of what happens some things start to unfold in our lives and we're thinking, I wonder how this is going to turn out. Oh my goodness, what, what if it goes that way? What if it doesn't happen the way I want it to? What if I'm disappointed or what if it doesn't work out? And, and then we find ourselves where the Lord kind of just, he puts us in a holding pattern. And he says, you got to just wait and see. Trust me. Trust me. And if we're impatient, what do we do? We, we need to feel like we've got to get our hand in there and work on the situation and we've got to do something and make it happen and cause it to come to pass and we want to manipulate. And sometimes the Lord says to us, listen, trust me. I'll take care of the matter. Just wait and see how the matter turns out. And maybe tonight, that's a word of the Lord for one of you. The Lord would be saying to you, just sit still until you know how the matter will turn out. Just wait in faith and know that the man, Jesus, is not going to rest. He's always working on your behalf. Always working on your behalf. Let him go to work. Let him do things. You pray, you wait, you see what he does. The Bible says we can be confident of this very thing. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. So trust the Lord, wait on his timing, and see how the matter turns out. Let's stand. Let's pray together. And